Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer of supplication and, and lifting up all those many needs that are there. We serve a great and wonderful God, amen, who is fully able to handle anything that we hold up to Him. Take your Bible this morning, and if you want to follow along with me as I unfold the message that God has put on my heart, I would suggest that you might start the first of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. You know, it's interesting as we think about the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ was not a reaction by God to tragic circumstances that unfolded in Jerusalem. It was not a knee-jerk reaction on behalf of our sovereign God. All of a sudden, he had to come up with a plan somehow to, to um, save his son. Uh, as we look at the scriptural record, it's important to understand that God, our great and sovereign, all-powerful God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, has always had a divine, perfect plan of redemption for lost humanity that dates all the way back to the tragic fall of man into sin recorded in Genesis chapter 3. And that's where I'll direct your attention as we begin the message this morning because we find embedded, ironically, in God's curse upon the serpent. And, of course, we know that the serpent, the creature, was, was possessed by the, the spirit of Satan. And so what God is doing here, after he's already pronounced the curse upon the man and the woman, he is pronoun he's pronouncing this curse upon the serpent. And, um, and in chapter 3, verse 15, uh, I'll just invite you to read along. These are words that, that the Lord is directing to the instigator of the fall, Satan, who is also the instigator of the fall of all people. In verse 15, he tells Satan this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And God made it very clear to Satan, even at that point, as dim and, and as dark and as hopeless as, as things look for humanity, God had a plan. And God preserved this plan. As you'll see as we look at some of the scripture, God preserved this wonderful plan of redemption through people of great faith. If you'll fast forward in your Bibles, and I just realized, you know, uh, this is a term that dates me because... You know, when I was a, say a kid and a teenager, you wouldn't have used the term fast forward because on those old 33 records that we played, you didn't fast forward them. There was no fast forward in anything. But in technology today with videos and, and CDs, you can say, oh yeah, fast forward. So if you fast forward in time, some 1600 years after the, the generation of Adam, we come to that faithful man, named Noah. And we know that Noah trusted the Lord. He trusted God and so much so that when God instructed him to build an ark, Noah did so. Of course, un, uh, subject to much ridicule. And so in Genesis chapter 6, if you look over at the very familiar story of Noah, we know that sinfully wicked humanity was engulfed and destroyed by the just and holy wrath of God. As you look at chapter 6, God had looked down upon humanity. Satan and all of his demons had run rampant all over the world and things were so wicked and immoral and, and absolutely disgusting that God grieved in his heart. And so he pronounced judgment. And it's interesting because God chose to use water to bring his judgment against humanity, against the judgment of God manifested by deluges of incredible flood waters, all of humanity on the face of the earth and all living creatures, including the birds of the air, would be destroyed save for Noah 
and his wife and his three sons and of course the creatures that God brought on board the ark. I think it's interesting as you look there in chapter 6 and that story of Noah. You look at verse 17. Chapter 6 verse 17. And God said, And behold, I myself am bringing the flood of waters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh that which is, that which is the breath of life and everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, talking to Noah, and you shall go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind and animals after their kind and every creeping thing on the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. The ark represented the presence of God. The ark represented the protection of God. For those who put their faith in God, God was saying to them, I will deliver you through my judgment. And the judgment was represented by the water. And indeed, as you understand how that story played out, Noah and his family were delivered many days later after the surface of the earth began to reappear. The water subsided and they went on with a new beginning by the faithfulness of God. We also, as we begin to fast forward again, some 475 years into the future, if you will, somewhere around 2025 B.C., we see another faithful servant of God. An, an, an old man who was childless at this point, and you know I'm talking about Abraham, who was at this point about 75 years old. So as we look over in chapter 15, uh, or chapter 12 of Genesis, we pick up with God's encounter with this man that he had singled out of all of humanity on the face of the earth. God singled out a man who God knew had faith in the living true God. His name was Abram. And God gave him a promise in Genesis chapter 12 in verse 2. He tells Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Don't forget, God has a plan. In the midst of fallen humanity, God has a redemptive plan that is perfect, that is divine, and he's working through human agents of faith to preserve that plan. And here's Abraham. Mind you, he's 75 years old without children, and we even go 11 years later in Abraham's life to Genesis chapter 15. You think, well, by then, Abraham would be at least 20, 25 children, right? No, not, not really. Even 11 years later, we see an interesting encounter as God develops a covenant between this man of faith and himself. Look in chapter 15 of Genesis in verse 5. Well, if you back up to verse 2, Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And that was a servant's boy. Wasn't even Abraham's biological child. Then Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of, of, of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside. I, I love this account in, in the book of Genesis between God and, and, and uh, Moses. As God brings Moses outside, he says, Look now into the heaven or toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And of course, that's an impossible task. 
And he says, so shall your descendants be. Now hang on to that thought. He's childless, doesn't have any biological offspring at this time. And God says, look into the sky. Try to count the stars. That's how many descendants you'll have one day. Look at verse 6. This is important. It was so significant that in Galatians, Paul also quoted it too. And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord. He trusted God. He put his faith in God. And what was the result? And he, he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham was made righteous by his undying faith in God. He trusted God. That what God said he would do, he certainly would do. And so it's interesting. As you read further in chapter 7, God instructed Abraham to prepare the setting for a covenant, a blood covenant. And that's important too because all throughout the scriptures, blood factors into God's plan of redemption. And God instructed Abraham to, to, to take a heifer, uh, that's a cow for some of you that didn't grow up on a farm, and, and, and to take a, a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon and he was to divide the larger animals in half and, and down in a ravine he would place one half of those larger animals on each side of the hill and then they, he would put one of the birds on each side of the hill after he had slain them. It was blood draining down into that ravine. Now normally in that culture the two people entered into a blood, blood covenant both would walk through the, the blood in their, with their feet and then they would walk through the bodies of those dead animals so as to say this is such a serious covenant that if you violate this then this will happen to you. Of course we know that God then placed Abraham into a deep sleep as the sun was settling down. In verse 12 when the sun was going down a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and, and behold horror and great darkness fell upon him. I think it's interesting because this is not only a covenant of blood, but it is a covenant of God's grace. God would not let Abraham walk through the blood. Because God was in essence saying, I am the one who will bear the responsibility for this covenant. And so God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And while he's in that deep sleep and there's great darkness that falls upon him, he speaks to Abraham. And you'll see the significance of just what God is saying as he's talking about this covenant, this plan of redemption that he has for humanity. In verse 13, he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years and also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterward they shall come out with great possession and look at verse 16 but in the fourth generation they shall return here where was here Abraham was in what would be known as the promised land. He was in the Canaanites land. He was in the land of Canaan. A land that God promised to the children of Israel later would be the promised land. And God said to Abraham, your descendants, though they will be in a foreign country under suppression of, of slavery or oppression of slavery, they will be delivered and brought back to this very place. And so this is God's working 
in the life of Abraham. And I think it's important too, as we think about God offering this promise to Abraham about having a multitude of descendants to be a great nation someday that God would work to carry out his great plan of redemption through and, and telling Abraham that, that in the future there will be a home for your people. You won't be wandering anymore. They'll have a land that will be their own. But by faith, Abraham and all of those that God had used prior to that were looking ahead by faith to see that there was a greater hope implied in God's covenant. It wasn't about a physical place here on earth. It wasn't ultimately about a promised land here on earth. How do we know that? Because in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 10, speaking of Abraham, for he waited for the city which has foundation, who, foundations whose builder and maker is God. And in verse 13, those all died in faith, not having received the promises, talking about Abraham and, and Noah and Enoch and Abel and all those who died in the faith prior to that. They all died in the faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar, afar off, were assured of them, embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And look at verse 16 in Hebrews 11. It says, but now they desire a better, desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them through the eyes of faith. I believe that this great man of faith knew that what God was talking about was a, a whole lot more than just a place on this earth that they could call home. That somehow, some way, through all of the quagmire of sin and, and the atrocities of Satan and all the pitfalls of humanity, that somehow God was working it out that he would bring to himself into his very divine holy presence those who were faithful to him. That was a part of God's wonderful plan of redemption. And now, as we fast forward to the book of Exodus, we're going to probably somewhere around 1445 B.C. This is some 600 years after Abraham's generation. Of course, we know that Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac became the promised one through whom the, the, the Messiah would ultimately come. And, and of course, after Isaac, we know there was uh, Jacob and Jacob's descendants. And so now we're talking about Jacob's descendants, and, and that would be Joseph's generation who moved down into Egypt. And as we, as we focus our attention at this point of the story in Exodus in chapter 10, we see where God's people, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, find themselves now in the land of Egypt. They're under uh, the, the enslaving bondage of a very cruel Pharaoh, an Egyptian Pharaoh there in Egypt. And, and God has raised up yet another great man of faith as he's raised up Moses now. And in Moses, he's going to carry forth his plan to, to deliver his people. Now, it's interesting because every time that God has brought a plague, and God has brought up to this point uh, nine plagues against Pharaoh. You know that God caused the, the Nile River to turn to blood. And that wasn't enough to break the heart of, 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 and the will of Pharaoh. And after the, the turning of the water to, flood, uh, to blood, uh, of course, God brought the, the, the 
pestilence of frogs, a myriad of frogs that came into the land and, and was such a, a, a hassle for the people. And if that wasn't bad enough, then God brought a, a plague of lice to torment the people. And if that wasn't enough, swarms of, of nasty flies. To, I don't like one fly, I can't imagine. Hundreds and millions of them. And they came and infested the land. And if that wasn't bad enough, then God brought disease to the livestock upon which the people depended. And if that didn't create enough misery, then God caused boils to come upon the bodies of the people and followed by these terrible storms of hailstones that destroyed the land and then when Pharaoh's heart was still hardened he caused locusts to invade the land from the from the east and swarmed and destroyed the crops time after time but you see not only was God trying to break the heart the will of Pharaoh and to demonstrate his superiority over Pharaoh God was making a powerful statement about the impotence of the dead gods of the Egyptians. They had many fake, false gods. And God was basically saying to them, your gods are absolutely lifeless. They are absolutely powerless. They are helpless against the one true living God. In chapter 10 and verse 21, we know that God brought that la the ninth plague, the next to the last plague. And, and, and it tells us there in verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. That's pretty thick, dark. I don't know if I've ever been in... Well, yeah, I went down in the Linville Caverns one time, and that was pretty dark when they turned the lights off. And it was just a real thick darkness and it was all over the land and Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days they did not see one another nor did anyone rise from his place for three days but all the children of Israel had light in their dwelling so where God had brought the, the plague of darkness upon the Egyptians he exempted his people and they had light now God was setting the stage here because while the Egyptians were absolutely in the dark and, and everything came to a standstill, they couldn't see their hand in front of the face, so they didn't go anywhere. They stayed put. This was very paralyzing to the Egyptian culture. While they were in the midst of their excuse me, darkness, God was preparing his people. He was instructing the people through Moses and Aaron of the upcoming Passover. And that was significant. This would be a significant celebration for the people of Israel in their future. But God was preparing them for what he was going to do in that last plague towards Pharaoh and towards Egypt. And basically what he was telling them is that he was going to strike the firstborn of all of the Egyptians in the land. That would be beginning with Pharaoh down to the lowest servant and even the livestock of the land. He was going to cause death to come upon all of those and yet he would spare his people if they entered into a covenant of faith Represented by blood. Again, remember, blood has an important role to play in God's plan of redemption for his people. I thought it was interesting because as we think about this period of three days that Egypt was in pure, absolute darkness, I think about, uh, you probably reflected upon this too on, on Good Friday when Jesus Christ uh, was hanging on the cross. We were told about the twelfth hour. That, uh, that, that Jesus, about, about noon, Jesus was hanging on the, on the cross. It would be about the, the, the ninth hour. And Jesus was hanging on the cross. And, and, and we're told that God caused great darkness to come upon Golgotha and across the city of Jerusalem such that everything just virtually came to a standstill. We see that darkness penetrating Egypt as God is getting ready to institute 
this great Passover for his, for his people's exodus from the land. And so as we look there and, and God gives instructions in chapter 11, he's telling the people about the importance of, of preparing for this. And in the instructions for the Passover, God instructs every family in chapter 12, he instructs them to take an unblemished lamb, a, a lamb of, of one year, and they are to kill that lamb, and they are to take the, the blood of that lamb and place it in a basin, and then they are to take the hyssop branches and splash it on the lintels of the door that would be the post above and on the sides of the doors. And I think it's interesting because these are known as the Passover lamb. And we know on that Friday when Jesus was crucified, about three o'clock in the afternoon, the time that Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, tells us that the Paschal lambs would have been slain is the very hour that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And, and here God has given instructions that this lamb would be killed by twilight of that day and the blood would be splashed in the form of a cross at the doorway and when God would come across the land that night in this last plague that he would see the blood and he would spare the family inside so this was the 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 exodus if you will for God's people this was a demonstration of God's grace towards his people through his through the blood that was symbolized on the doorpost and wherever God saw the blood he would pass over and hence we have the name of the Passover so there in chapter 12 in in, in Exodus as we pick up with the story this is uh, the, the the 10th plague that has been uh, enacted by God in verse 29 and it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. Verse 30. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, and there was not a house where there was not one dead, of course, with the exception of the Israelites. In verse 31. Then he, Pharaoh, called Moses and Aaron by night and said, Arise! And go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go and serve the Lord as you have said. And take your flocks and take your herds as you have said. And be gone and bless me. And in verse 33 of chapter 12, And the Egyptians urged the people, the Israelites, that they might send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. And so this is God's bringing that great plague upon the nation of Egypt. And I think it's interesting too that as God is walking through the land of Egypt, God is, it himself is bringing death upon those who would be the enemies of his people. Our faith, their faith, results in our freedom, our ultimate deliverance from the enslavement of sin. It took faith for the Israelites to buy into this covenant that God was proposing to them. They had lived in slavery under Pharaoh for 400 years. And now, all of a sudden, they're hearing the word freedom. They're hearing the word exodus for the first time to leave those who had oppressed them and mistreated them. And it took faith. Because what if it didn't work? Then would Pharaoh then take it vengeance upon them? And so as we look over in chapter 13, as God is using Aaron and or using Moses and of course Aaron 
to lead the people from Egypt and they're going out towards the wilderness and of course we know they're camping by the Red Sea. You know the story well. But there's something in chapter 13 verse 21 I think is so important that we not miss. In chapter 13 of Exodus verse 21 and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before his people. Folks, notice this. Hold on to this. As they are preparing to, to encounter one of the greatest tests of their lives, faith-wise, God doesn't dispatch an angel to, to, to lead the people. God doesn't delegate one of his high-ranking angels to carry this out. The Lord himself comes and, and leads the people forward. Look at verse 6. Let's pick up there. Now I was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? We have let Israel go from serving us. So they're now having to change your heart. So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and all char and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea besides Pharaoh, before Baal Zephon. In verse 10, And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to, to die in the wilderness? So you see, they're not absolutely convinced just yet that God is able to deliver them. Is, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would, be, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. In verse 13, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. As God was setting the stage for the miraculous deliverance of his people from the land of Egypt, you understand that God wanted them to see clearly that they had to follow him. They had to trust him. They, God was not going to involve them they were not going to deliver themselves. They were not going to free themselves. It was absolutely dependent upon God working on their behalf. In verse 15, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Now I know many of you have seen that old Exodus film with Charlton Heston as he stands there and he holds out the rod. And you've probably seen some of the recent you know, editions of that movie. And how, how miraculous it is that the waters of the Red Sea would begin to part and, and, and build up like a wall. In verse 16 it says, But lift your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground. 
through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over his army, his chariots and his horsemen. God is out to make a statement not only to Egypt but to all the world. Because all the way back in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 6 uh, 16, God had told Pharaoh, it is for this purpose that I raised you up, that I may show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so God has set the stage. You understand that there was another route to the promised land. They didn't have to go through the Red Sea. God brought them to this point for a purpose because they couldn't Traverse the Red Sea, especially with the Egyptians breathing down their back and threatening death upon them. There was only one way that their salvation would occur. There was only one way that their deliverance would transpire and it would be God. Absolutely no question about it. God. Verse 18, then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now look at verse 19. And the angel of the Lord. Now we said, we spoke to this before. When you see the angel of the Lord in caps in your Bible, in the scriptures, that is an indication that this is what theologians call a Christophany. It is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate presence, was there. He was in the cloud. He was the one that was generating the cloud. He was the one that was instructing Moses. He was the one that was leading the way for his people. Now you'll note that God said he would have the cloud to go, to go before the people to shine light for the people. But he would be on the backside of his people and stand between them in danger. And they would have to put themselves in the presence, in the midst, and at the mercy of God as he would lead them through the Red Sea that day. In verse 20, So it came between the camp and the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus was a cloud and darkness to one, and it came and it gave light by night to the other, so that the one could not come near the other all that night. So throughout that night, as the, as the, water, as the waters of the Red Sea just mounted up and stacked up as a giant wall on, on either side of the Israelites, and as the cloud was moving before them and behind them and protecting them from behind, shining the way before them, the land was dry before them as they walked across the Red Sea on dry land. And God put it in the hearts of the Egyptians not to just stand there and in marvel, but they would rush after the, the Israelites. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back. By a strong east wind. All that night. And made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea. On the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them. On their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch, that would be early between, say, 3 o'clock in the morning till, say, sunrise. Now it came to, to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. He troubled the army of the Egyptians. 
He took off their chariot wheels. Now that'll slow you down if you're on a, on a road trip. You know, if all of a sudden somebody loosens the lug bolts of your tires and they fall off, you're not going to go too far. You'll be calling AAA or something. But anyway, this, this really bogged them down. Now mind you, they're out there in the middle of the Red Sea. They've got massive walls, tons of water stacked up on both sides of them, this great pillar of cloud, and all of a sudden their, their wagon wheels are popping off, their chariot wheels are popping off, and they came to a reasonable conclusion in verse 25. They said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. I'm thinking, duh. <laughs> Ten plagues later, and you're in the middle of the sea, and all of a sudden you figure that the God of the Israelites might be greater than your gods, greater than your Pharaoh. So they start to flee. Verse 26, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots, and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. Not, these were some of the best fighting men in the world. This was probably one of the best equipped cavalries in the whole world. And in an instant, oh, Almighty God, lifts his hand and totally destroys them. The power of God. Verse 29, But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. You know, if you drop down to chapter 15, just very quickly, I want you to see verses 2 and 3. This is the song of Moses as he and the children of Israel stand on the seashore, the Red Sea. They see these Egyptian chariots and horses and soldiers washing up on the shore, thinking that these are the very ones that were, gonna, that were threatening to take their lives just a few hours ago. Moses said, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. God's working a plan. He's getting ready to establish a nation that would be His nation. And out of that nation called Israel, God would bring forth a descendant of, of Abraham, a descendant of Eve the seed of, of Eve, the woman. And that descendant would be the blessed Messiah who would ultimately deliver mankind from the penalty of their sins. You see, there is an exodus in Easter. If you turn now to the New Testament, we're going to fast forward in time some 3,500 years to today. Resurrection celebration right here. And 2,000 years after the birth, the earthly ministry, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, 
What is it that we celebrate today? What is it that we visually saw demonstrated in these baptismal waters of the ordinance of baptism? In chapter 6 of Romans, the Apostle Paul helps us to see just that. If you'll turn over there to Romans in chapter 6. The Lord brought us through death. You see, the, sea, the Red Sea to the Israelites represented death. It represented judgment. It's interesting. Because to, to one group, that which was a, a pathway to, to salvation. A pathway to life. A pathway to promise and hope. For the other group, the Egyptians, was a pathway of judgment. A pathway of death. And that's what death is. It's like a sea that inevitably we all enter. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it's appointed unto man to die. It's not a matter of if we're going to die. It's when we're going to die. We will find ourselves spiritually at the shore of the sea of death. That to sinful humanity represents judgment. It represents eternal death. Those who emerge into the sea of death and everyone will find themselves drawn to that shore sooner or later. And when you pass through for those who do not have Redemption in Jesus Christ, it is a sea of death, eternal death. It is a sea of eternal judgment. The Israelites emerged in, or, or descended into the sea of the Red Sea, but they ascended on the other side with promise and hope and deliverance, salvation. The Egyptians, on the other hand, entered into the sea of, of the, the Red Sea never to come forth again. To face their sure death. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? That grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of you, uh, of us, as were baptized into Christ, were, were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried in we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death certainly also we shall certainly we shall also be the likeness of his resurrection Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. You see what Paul is saying? Just as the Israelites had been slaves to the Egyptians for 400 years, every person born on the face of the earth is born into slavery. Born into slavery to sin. Born in bondage to the devil. In fact, we're in shackles to the devil. Helpless against the powers of the demons and the forces of evil. Verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. 
Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. The Lord has brought us through death and judgment to salvation. And Paul says that. When we agree with God's word that we were condemned sinners deserving sin's penalty, which is eternal separation from God and subject to unending agony, separated from God in a hideous place of torment, when we accept the reality of the penalty of our sins, and when we repent, which means a conscious decision to turn our backs on sin. And when we place our saving faith in, the G in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and when we commit to follow Him, His Word, obediently for the rest of our lives, we die to sin. Because we die with Christ. To die with Christ means to be absolutely immersed in Jesus Christ. It's total identity, by spiritually speaking, to be totally identified with Christ. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ died on that cross, by faith I was with Him. By faith you were with Him. He was on the cross. He suffered the agony. But by our faith, we were immersed in Him and he was dying for your sins and he was dying for my sins. Paul says, you have died to sin in Christ. But then he also goes on to say that be, by the same faith, we are raised with Christ into this new life. I think about the baptismal waters that we saw demonstrated there in the ordinance of baptism. When a candidate for baptism submits themselves to baptism, they're making a public proclamation. I've died to Christ. I am with Christ in death. I've died to sin. I'm no longer that, that person, that sinful person, the enemy of God, alienated from God. No, I am not any longer because as they were Lord under the waters, they were saying to us symbolically, they died with Christ. But hallelujah, just as they were raised with out of the water, they symbolized the fact that they had been resurrected in Christ as well and regenerated by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The people that went into the Red Sea who called themselves the descendants of Abraham traversed the, the, the dry land of that seabed and they emerged on the other side different. They went into those waters slaves. They went into those waters a conquered people. They went into those waters a hopeless people. 
But because they were in the presence of the Lord, put their trust in the Lord, and they depended upon the Lord, they emerged on the other side a completely different people because now they were the people of God, a people of promise, a people of hope. And we symbolically, when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are celebrating the fact that we have also participated in this wonderful exodus from the old sinful nature and the old sinful life to emerge as children of God. We live now lives of righteousness like Paul said in verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Sin no longer has to control you. The devil has no control over you. Listen, death can't keep you in the grave. Hallelujah. Because we have experienced the spiritual exodus from that old nature of sin or that old death in sin. Well, I want to close by doing one more fast forward. Because I want to fast forward over to the future. In Revelation chapter 5. And this is the future. Because you're in it. And I'm in it. I love to look into the future and see great things with me in it. As John is, is, is describing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit there in chapter 5. What the Lord Jesus is revealing to him about the celestial throne room of God. He says in verse 9, and they, who's they? It's us. And all the saints who've gone uh, ahead in glory. It's all those who have died with Christ and resurrected in Christ and are there in heaven one day. And, and, and this is not the angels. The angels can't sing this song they're about to sing. It's the song of the redeemed. Because listen to it. Speaking of Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. In verse 11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the numbers of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Probably 100 million, if you will. Angels and saints together shouting with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And every creature which is in the heaven and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power be to him who sits on the throne, and to him, or, and to the Lamb, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. One day... Maybe sooner than we think. One day, Jesus will be coming back. He'll be coming back to claim those who are His. Whether that be through the exodus of a rapture or through the exodus of death. He's going to lead us from this old sinful world, from these sin-tainted bodies, 
and for the and from the the torment of the devil and the demons and all the evil powers and one day we'll be there that will be us it will be given him praise and glory because of his resurrection we too live forever one day